Welcome to NTD News Today. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beard. Now we begin our coverage of a Senate hearing on what's fueling the diabetes epidemic in America. More than 10% of Americans suffer from type 2 diabetes. Senator Bernie Sanders says food and beverage companies are to blame. Let's watch. Uh, Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor and Pensions will come to order. Um, today we are going to be discussing one of the major health crises in America. Uh, and that is the diabetes epidemic that is having a huge impact on our country and an issue that must be addressed. Uh, diabetes, as I think we all know, is not only a serious illness unto itself, but it is a contributing factor to heart disease, stroke, amputations, blindness, and kidney failure. Type 1 diabetes is a major problem that impacts over 1.4 million Americans, and we're going to be discussing that issue today. And my understanding is that Senator Cassidy uh, has brought two witnesses who are extremely knowledgeable about type 1 diabetes, and we look forward to hearing what they have to say. Uh, my focus is going to be on type 2 diabetes, uh, which impacts about 95% of Americans uh, who have diabetes. There is obviously a whole lot that can be said about diabetes, uh, but here are just a few of the questions that I hope we will dive into uh, this morning. First, and maybe most importantly, why have we seen a huge increase in the number of people in America who have developed diabetes over the last 50 years? What's going on? What has changed? I think that maybe is the most important question. Secondly, how is diabetes impacting our healthcare system? And I think we know some of those answers. Uh, thirdly, given the huge number of people who are struggling with diabetes, how can we make the treatments, and there are some very effective treatments out there, how do we make them available to everyone who needs them regardless of their income? And further, when we talk about the cost of treatments in diabetes, uh, we are cognizant of the fact that Medicaid and Medicare and other public health programs spend huge amounts of money uh, for those treatments, uh, as do private health insurance companies. So how do we make sure that we don't bankrupt Medicare and Medicaid in the process of treating diabetes? First, the problem. Today in America, rather remarkably, uh, we have over 35 million Americans, that's over 10% of our population, who have type 2 diabetes. And the cost of treating that disease is absolutely staggering. According to the American Diabetes Association, the total cost of diabetes in the United States was nearly $413 billion dollars last year, $413 billion. And that's up 27% over the past six years. And that amounts to about 10% of our overall healthcare costs. So one out of every $10 spent on healthcare is dealing with diabetes. And when we talk about the type two diabetes epidemic, 
and the huge increase in new cases, we must also talk about another epidemic, and that is the epidemic of obesity in America. Some 90% of people with type 2 diabetes are overweight or obese. These two epidemics go hand in hand. A key question that we must discuss, how did it happen, according to the CDC, that the rate of childhood obesity in America has tripled since the 1970s, tripled since the 1970s, and has gotten so bad that one out of every five children and over 40% of adults in our country today are now obese. Why is it that according to the CDC, the number of children in America with type 2 diabetes is estimated to skyrocket by nearly 700% over the next 40 years unless we get a handle on that issue. That's just an extraordinary number. The answers to those questions uh, are not complicated. Difficult, but not complicated. For decades, in my view, we have allowed large corporations in the food and beverage industry to entice children to eat foods and beverages loaded up with sugar, salt, and saturated fat, purposely designed to be overeaten. The situation has gotten so bad that most of what children in America eat today consists of unhealthy, ultra-processed foods that doctors have told us lead to a higher risk of type 2 diabetes. Alarmingly, according to a recent study that will be discussed this morning, ultra-processed foods, which make up an incredible 73% of our nation's food supply, can be as addicted, addictive, can be as addictive as alcohol and nearly as addictive as cigarettes. While diabetes and obesity rates in America soar, while we spend hundreds of billions of dollars to treat diabetes, the food and beverage industry spent $14 billion last year on advertising to make many of their unhealthy products appealing to the American consumer. Even worse, and I think really what gets to me, $2 billion of their advertising budget is used to directly market food predominantly high in sugar, salt, and saturated fat to our children in order to get them hooked on these products at an early age. How's that? According to the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, children and teens view about 4,000 food and beverage ads on television every year, an average of 10 advertisements each day. Another study found that children who watch Nickelodeon and Nicktoons are exposed to over 10 unhealthy food and beverage ads every hour. They're going after the children. Let me give you just one example. Last year, for example, Coca-Cola spent $327 million on advertising in the United States alone. Not one of those ads will tell you that drinking one or two cans of Coke a day will increase your chances of getting type 2 diabetes by 26%. I didn't quite see that in those lovely ads that they do. Nor will their TV ads tell you that one 20-ounce bottle of Coke contains over 15 teaspoons of sugar, more than twice the recommended daily limit for kids under the age of 18. Nearly 30 years ago, as I think we all know and the American people know, Congress had the extraordinary courage, and it was not easy, 
to take on the tobacco industry, whose products killed over 400,000 Americans every year, including my father. Congress had the courage to do that then. Now is the time for us to seriously combat the type 2 diabetes and obesity epidemics in America. In order to do that, we must have the courage to take on the greed of the food and beverage industry, which every day is undermining the health and well-being of our children. As adults, as responsible people, as representatives of the American people, we have got to do that. And in my view, a good place to start would be to ban junk food ads targeted to children. Now, this is not a radical idea. The NIH has estimated that if the United States banned fast food advertising marketed to children, talking about kids, we could cut the childhood obesity rate in our country by up to 18%. In the 1980s, Quebec banned junk food advertising to children. Today, Quebec has the lowest childhood obesity rate in Canada and the highest consumption of fruits and vegetables of any province in their nation. Ireland, Sweden, South Korea, Taiwan, Spain, Portugal, and several other major countries throughout the world have either seriously restricted or banned junk food ads targeted to children. In addition to addressing the causes of type 2 diabetes, there is another important issue that we have got to address. We have got to make certain that the treatments available to people with diabetes are affordable for all Americans and are not bankrupting federal health insurance programs or raising the cost of private insurance. The very good news is that a new class of treatments for diabetes and obesity, like Ozempic and Munjaro, have the potential to be a game changer with respect to these major epidemics. According to clinical trials, these drugs, which suppress appetite, have been estimated to help people lose 15 to 20 percent of their weight. That's the good news, and it's importantly good news. The bad news is that these drugs also have the potential to bankrupt Medicare and the American people. According to research published in the New England Journal of Medicine, if just 10 percent of people with obesity on Medicare took these drugs, it could cost Medicare up to $27 billion a year driving Medicare premiums way, way up. Further, incredibly, these drugs, Ozempic and Mujaro, are up to 15 times more expensive in the United States than they are in other major countries. Let me repeat, these two important drugs, up to 15 times more expensive in the United States than in other countries. Ozempic, manufactured by Novo Nordisk, costs $12,000 a year in the United States. You know what it costs in Germany? $750 a year. Manjaro, manufactured by Eli Lilly, costs $13,000 in the United States, costs $2,000 a year in the United Kingdom. Incredibly, it has been estimated that Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk, and others in the pharmaceutical industry stand to make as much as $150 billion off of these drugs each and every year by charging us by far the highest prices in the world for their products. This is, to my mind, unacceptable for so many reasons. And that is why I am going to be introducing legislation which is very simple. It's legislation that says that here in the United States, we cannot continue to pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. We should not be paying more than other major countries. And if that bill were to be signed in law, we would lower the cost of prescription drugs in this country by 50%. Um, 
so that is where we are today. We have two issues. What is the cause of the epidemic? And how do we make sure that we have treatments available to all? I very much thank all of the panelists for being here. This is a very important issue, and I look forward to this discussion. Senator Cassidy, the mic is yours. Today we're tuning into a Senate hearing on what's fueling the diabetes epidemic in America. People who have diabetes pay two and a half times more in medical expenses on average than those who don't. Senator Bernie Sanders says drug companies are to blame. Let's watch. Thank you, Chairman Sanders. Uh, the obesity epidemic is quite remarkable. And type 1 diabetes obviously not related to obesity, but nonetheless part of that which we're uh, addressing today. Uh, and if you look at a kind of a map of the United States over the last three decades and the prevalence and incidence of diabetes, it just lights up, goes bigger and more intense, et cetera, however you look at the map. Uh, so it's a bipartisan issue. I'm glad the committee is addressing it. I will say, however, that the focus of the hearing has changed from our original agreement to explore the prevention, treatment, and management of diabetes from a clinical and public health perspective. Diet and access to healthy foods are important, but I will point out that corporate marketing practices to consumers and human nutrition are not the jurisdiction of this committee. Those are under commerce and agriculture. Um, Food marketing is what this committee will focus on today. But ideally, the committee's time would be addressing issues over which we have legislative authority. If we have legislative authority, we can do something. If we have a hearing on something over which we have no legislative authority, we have a hearing. Um, so I'll also point out, though, that our colleagues, Senators Susan Collins and Jean Shaheen, have led the Special Diabetes Program Reauthorization, which the committee did successfully vote out in June. Uh, when enacted, it will provide additional mandatory resources for diabetes research at NIH. Um, I'd also like, and that would be a good, a good thing to have discussed today, how the NIH is using its discretionary funding, because uh, that's something over which we do actually have jurisdiction. Uh, we should look at why NIH habitually underfunds obesity research, despite it being the kind of foundation of why type 2, uh, the rate of type 2 diabetes has gone up so dramatically, uh, as well as, by the way, its impact upon many other uh, medical conditions. It's important to explore the impact of recent medical advances upon the lives of diabetics. American medical innovation is saving countless lives. Diabetes is no different. Groundbreaking developments in diabetes management, like the Continuous Glucose Monitor, or CGM, increases patient adherence to treatment while improving quality of life for patients and peace of mind for parents and caretakers. We could familiarize ourselves more with that. I I'm a doc, but I wasn't aware of it. And then somebody says, oh, no, you look on your phone. You can see what your diabetes is. It, it kind of really brings it home to the folks. Uh, and it was quite remarkable, my internist friends explaining to me how this has been uh, so changing, uh, so, so, so positive of a change in terms of the management of diabetes. We can point out that even 10 years ago, parents were worried about their child, children developing diabetic shock. But now with affordable CGMs and other innovative advices, blood glucose uh, levels are monitored in real time, and these devastating occurrences such as diabetic shock are prevented. 
We need to continue to foster innovation and the solutions it creates. CGMs are miracles to many now, but at some point it will become yesterday's news. We need the next miracles. Cellular treatments are on the horizon, and we have the potential to again revolutionize how Americans live with diabetes. I visited an outfit in Massachusetts, and they showed me this kind of twirling bath. And they said those are islet cells that can be gathered up and injected under someone's arm. And this is a technology that will be uh, implemented. Quite remarkable. Uh, again, we could have been discussing that today. The task of this committee is to balance affordability with innovation. I accept the chair's point. If there is an innovation that someone cannot afford, it is as if that innovation doesn't occur. Um, so I'm with you on that. Um, but we should, again, be discussing topics within the committee's jurisdiction. That's what we have the responsibility to do. And if there's something that we can actually address, then consider legislation. I look forward to exploring the issues that we can address with our witnesses. With that, I yield. Thank you very much, Senator Cassidy. Uh, now we're going to hear from our very distinguished and knowledgeable witnesses, and we're delighted they're with us today. Uh, our first witness will be Dr. Ashley Gerhardt. Uh, who is a professor of psychology and clinical science at the University of Michigan. Dr. Gerhardt's research focuses on the effects of poor nutrition on di uh, diabetes and obesity, in fact, is driving excessive consumption of unhealthy foods. Notably, she has published a recent study on how ultra-processed food can be as addictive as nicotine and alcohol. Dr. Gerhardt, thanks so much for being with us. Chairman Sanders, Ranking Member Cassidy, and distinguished members of the committee, Thank you for the opportunity to participate in today's meeting. To begin, I will briefly review my qualifications to speak as an expert at this hearing. I received my PhD in clinical psychology at Yale University with a focus on addictive disorders, obesity, and disordered eating. I'm currently a professor of psychology and the director of the Food and Addiction Science and Treatment Lab at the University of Michigan. I'm also a licensed clinical psychologist. Through my clinical experiences, I have gained a firsthand understanding of how hard people are working to try and get control over their eating. I saw that even when people were faced with life-threatening health conditions like diabetes and were very motivated to change, they still failed to do so. My research has been built on the parallels between what I observed in the clinic and my scientific training on how certain substances can trigger addictive processes. In my research, I use multi-method approaches to explore the neurobiological, psychological, and behavioral factors that contribute to compulsive overeating and its negative consequences like obesity and diabetes. The American food supply has changed dramatically over the last 40 years. The American diet is now composed mostly of ultra-processed foods. Ultra-processed foods are industrially manufactured products created by deconstructing foods from their component parts, modifying them, and combining them with a myriad of additives. The resulting ultra-processed foods contain little, if any, whole foods, and they are a major source of added sugars and saturated fats in our diets. The average American adult and child gets the majority of their calories from ultra-processed foods. Ultra-processed foods have been implicated in health conditions like depression and obesity across numerous studies. Based on an analysis of 400,000 people, every 10% increase in ultra-processed food intake is associated with a 12% higher risk of type 2 diabetes. There are strong parallels between addictive substances and ultra-processed foods. 
Addictive substances are created through processing natural substances, like fruits or leaves, and to new products that rapidly deliver a naturally high doses of reinforcing ingredients into the body, like nicotine and cigarettes. Ultra-processed foods are similarly created by altering natural substances like fruits and grains and to products that deliver unnaturally high doses and combinations of carbohydrates and fats which are then rapidly digested by our bodies. Additives further enhance the flavor and texture of these ultra-processed foods and make them shelf-stable, accessible, and convenient. Basic neuroscience finds that ultra-processed foods, high in carbohydrates and fats, activate reward systems in the brain in an analogous manner to addictive substances like nicotine. Key signs of addiction occur in our intake of ultra-processed foods. Systematic reviews of over 280 studies estimate that 14% of adults and 12% of children meet the criteria for an addictive disorder in their intake of ultra-processed foods. This includes losing control over intake, intense, almost irresistible cravings, and an inability to reduce intake despite serious negative consequences. This addictive pattern of ultra-processed food intake is associated with a more than five times greater occurrence of type 2 diabetes. I want to provide a representative quote from a research participant from my lab. She said, I can't even be in the same vicinity as a donut store or any type of donuts because I will finish a dozen all by myself and I'm a type 2 diabetic. So that could kill me. I know that, and I know that I shouldn't be eating all of those. I shouldn't be eating one, let alone a whole dozen. But for some reason, I just can't stop eating them. If addictive mechanisms are being triggered by ultra-processed foods, this may be an overlooked reason why it can be challenging to reduce intake, even in the face of health conditions like diabetes. There are also strong connections between the tobacco and processed food industries. From the 1980s to the late 2000s, tobacco companies like R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris became the biggest producers of processed food in the world. Internal tobacco industry documents demonstrate strategies designed to develop and sell cigarettes were applied to their processed food and beverage holdings, such as adding flavor enhancers developed for cigarettes into children's sugar-sweetened beverages, and increasing targeted marketing to children and racial ethnic minorities. Lessons learned from the tobacco epidemic can help guide solutions here. Investing in science to understand how ultra-processed foods activate mechanisms of addiction and contribute to excessive intake is important. Multi-pronged approaches and a focus on prevention, particularly for youth, will be important for improving Americans' health. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Dr. Gerhardt. Our next witness will be Dr. Lindsay smith Telly. Associate Professor in the Department of Nutrition at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Dr. Telly is a nutrition epidemiologist who evaluates food policies and the industry's influence on consumer choices. Dr. Telly, thanks so much for being with us. Chairman Sanders, Ranking Member Cassidy, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. My name is Lindsay Smith-Taley, and I'm a nutrition epidemiologist who works in the U.S. and globally. My research focuses on understanding how the food industry and the food environment influences nutrition, particularly among kids, as well as what policies work to create healthier diets. In every country where I work, one thing is true. Parents want to make healthy choices for their kids. However, the current food environment makes it nearly impossible. 
Diets are a major driver of obesity and type 2 diabetes, and this problem is especially alarming for kids. In the US, pediatric type 2 diabetes has doubled over the last two decades. Healthier diets prevent diabetes and are more cost effective than medication. So why don't we change our diets? First, our food supply. Most of our packaged foods are ultra-processed, and nearly half are too high in added sugar, sodium, and saturated fat. Our food contains more sugar and sweeteners than other high-income countries. We can't make healthy choices if healthy food is unavailable. Second, these products are aggressively marketed to children and disproportionately targeted to black and Hispanic youth. Food companies spend $14 billion a year on food advertising in the US, of which 80% is for unhealthy foods. Marketing is powerful. It makes kids want unhealthy foods, and it makes them consume more of them. Third, kids still get mostly ultra-processed foods at school. Unhealthy food marketing inside schools is also very common. This serves to hook kids on unhealthy foods at a very early age. It's also very hard for parents to know what's healthy versus unhealthy. Nutrition claims like 100% all natural are very common in our food supply and lend an aura of healthfulness even to unhealthy foods. Meanwhile, the Nutrition Facts panel provides useful information but can be hard to understand. Parents can't make informed choices without accessible information. Today we're tuning in to a Senate hearing on what's fueling the diabetes epidemic in America. More than 10% of Americans suffer from type 2 diabetes. Senator Bernie Sanders says food and beverage companies are to blame. Let's watch. Another major factor is price. Ultra-processed foods tend to be cheaper than healthy foods. Even though parents want to buy healthy foods, they buy ultra-processed because it's cheaper. Right now, the price of these unhealthy products does not reflect the health cost of consuming them. Lastly, the food industry has interfered with science and policy. Companies have paid to play by funding professional societies and research scientists to change the narrative about what causes obesity and diabetes. They also position themselves as part of the solution through voluntary initiatives, despite overwhelming scientific evidence that these programs are ineffective. So how can we fix this? We already have good data on what works. First, the U.S. should require clear nutrition labels on the front of food packages, a policy that the majority of Americans support across political parties. The FDA is currently researching front of package labels for the U.S. However, many of the designs that the FDA is focusing on are not based on the scientific evidence from the 10 countries that have implemented these labels, nor the many experiments we've conducted in the U.S. For example, several of the proposed FDA labels include numbers or color schemes that research shows consumers do not understand. In contrast, simple nutrient warnings like those in Mexico and most of South America are well understood even by children. In addition, in countries with these labels, the food industry has cut sugar, sodium, and saturated fat with no adverse effect on the economy. The FDA needs to work closely with scientists to develop evidence-backed labels that are easy to understand and clearly signal to consumers when products are unhealthy. Second, the U.S. should limit unhealthy food marketing to kids, much as it has for tobacco. Restricting where ads appear and the use of techniques like cartoons cut kids' exposure and helps them develop healthy preferences. Also, companies should not be allowed to take tax deductions on what they spend on food advertising. Third, our kids deserve classrooms that are free from corporate food. We should restrict the marketing, promotion, and sale of ultra-processed foods in schools, which global data show reduces their availability and improves children's diets. We also should use economic pressure to shift the food supply. Just like in tobacco, poor diets create massive healthcare burden and health costs in the US. 
and as in tobacco, taxes on the production of sugary drinks and ultra-processed foods would make food companies pay the true cost of these products. Global data show that these taxes spur companies to create healthier products and reduce the consumption of unhealthy foods. To further support diabetes prevention, revenue from these taxes could be used to fund fruit and vegetable subsidies for low-income families. Lastly, we need more funding for nutrition research. Even though nutrition is the leading cause of obesity and diabetes, only a tiny fraction of the NIH budget goes towards nutrition. Additional research funding is critical to improving diets and preventing obesity and diabetes. In conclusion, kids should not be sick because of our food environment. Federal policy action is urgently needed to make the healthy choice the easy choice. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, our next witness is Dr. Kasia Lipska, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Yale School of Medicine, uh, and we thank her very much for being with us. Thank you. Chairman Sanders and Ranking Member Cassidy, I am Dr. Kasia Lipska, Physician Scientist at the Yale School of Medicine. Thank you for the opportunity to present my testimony. As a clinician, I take care of patients who, have, who already have developed diabetes. There are now over 35 million people with type 2 diabetes in our country. Nearly one in every third older adults has diabetes. My focus with patients is to reduce the risk of complications of diabetes, such as heart attacks, strokes, amputations, kidney failure, and blindness. One of the biggest challenges in my clinical practice, including this past year, is still figuring out how to get my patients access to affordable treatment. Even the best medications cannot help patients if they cannot afford them. According to a national survey in 2021, 16.5% of people with diabetes rationed their insulin because of cost. This is not just due to lack of insurance coverage. Among Medicare beneficiaries with diabetes, one in 10 reported skipping, delaying, or taking less medication to save money. There has been so much excitement about the new medications in type 2 diabetes and obesity. That's because some of the medications, including semaglutide or Zempic, really seem to work. They not only help people lose weight, but also, importantly, reduce the risk of complications related to diabetes and obesity. But the price tags for these new medications are simply outrageous. Ozempic, the brand name for semaglutide approved for type 2 diabetes and marketed by Novo Nordisk, has a US list price of over $900 per month. Wegovy, the brand name for the same drug approved for obesity, is $1,300 per month. If Medicare were to fully cover Wegovy for all of its beneficiaries with obesity for one year, we as American taxpayers would end up with a $268 billion invoice. To give you some perspective, that's 70% of all the money that was spent on prescription drugs in the US in 2021. And could we stop at one year? Probably not. What we know about semaglutide and the related medications is that they work while people take them. However, as soon as they stop, their weight comes back. So patients are looking at a potentially lifelong treatment. And we could be facing the most expensive subscription service in the history of medicine. What can Congress do to fix this? Ozempic is priced at roughly $100 per month in Sweden and just $80 in Australia and France. That's 10% of what we're being asked to pay. One explanation is that those governments are negotiating prices directly with the pharmaceutical companies. 
That's not socialized medicine. That's smart negotiating. Price negotiation is critical, but I believe we must do more. Pharmaceutical companies have absolutely no restrictions on the launch prices of their products, nor is there any evidence that these prices are reflective of research and development costs. No amount of expert negotiation can bring down drug prices years later when the launch price is sky high to begin with. We have to align the launch price with the drug's value, the cost to develop and manufacture the drug, and what patients can afford. This is a rational approach that is in place in many other developed countries. But I want to be clear here. Medications alone cannot be the solution to the diabetes and obesity epidemics. We need to be more farsighted and strategic than that. Neither diabetes nor obesity is a moral failure or a personal choice. Just telling people to eat less, exercise more, is not going to solve the problem. Instead, we must address the upstream causes of obesity, like holding the food industry accountable, as my fellow experts have already made clear. The reality is that the drug industry is really good at pushing its solutions and its products. Drug companies are powerful, sometimes more powerful than governments. Novo Nordisk, which is based in Denmark, now has a market value that is bigger than its host nation's GDP. So we must remember that drugs alone can't save us. They are only part of the solution. We can't simply prescribe our way out of this problem. And before we sign up for that never-ending subscription service and spend trillions of dollars, let's be smart consumers and have the government at the negotiating table right from the start. In closing, the bottom line is this. We have a food industry that profits from making people sick and a drug industry that profits from treating them. We must break that cycle. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Cassidy, you want to introduce your witnesses? Yes, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, please first introduce Mrs. Natalie Stanback, a mother to a type 1 diabetes patient. Mrs. Stanback provides an insightful personal perspective on the issues children with type 1 diabetes and their parents encounter. In 2015, Mrs. Stanback's daughter, Nadia, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and, um, uh, and apparently your family has a strong family history of this, of type 1, unrelated to obesity. Natalie volunteers with JDRF, the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, to advocate for type 1 diabetes research. Earlier this year, she served as chair of the JDRF's Children's Congress. She lives in Texas with her husband and three kids. Thank you for joining us. I look forward to your testimony. Chairman Sanders, Ranking Member Dr. Cassidy, members of the committee, thank you for inviting me to testify today. I'm here be because, unfortunately, I am deeply familiar with the many challenges presented by type 1 diabetes, or T1D. I do not have this disease, but my 11-year-old daughter Nadia does, and she lives with it. My brother died from complications of T1D when he was only 38 years old, so you can imagine the fear that I felt when Nadia was diagnosed at the age of three. It was overwhelming to say the least. Nadia does not know life without diabetes. We are blessed to have access to the best medical care, which helps her live the life she wants to live. She has an insulin pump and a continuous glucose monitor. She plays soccer and runs track. She looks like a normal kid, and in most ways she is. 
but diabetes is always there, 365 days a year, 24-7. This disease is hard and it is cumbersome. We are an emotionally positive family, glass half full, but this disease is still hard on all of us, but especially it's hard on Nadia. She can't eat without calculating how many carbohydrates are in the food so that she can dose for the correct amount of insulin. Her blood sugar levels can go low during soccer games, which forces her to sit out and then treat it and then get, get back in the game if there's still time. She has to deal with the needles necessary to change insulin pump infusion sites and glucose monitoring sensors in a way that many adults would and still do struggle with. And then the prescriptions and doctor's appointments must be diligently managed. My daughter is brave. She's responsible and she's miraculous, but it's still so very hard every day, not just for her, but for all those around her. Her siblings, extended family members, teachers, coaches, friends, friends, parents, everyone needs to understand Nadia's needs and how they can help, especially in the case of an emergency. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a city to raise a child with diabetes. I know that the members of this committee are aware of the realities of diabetes and have championed this cause for years. I am grateful. I was honored to chair JDRF's Children's Congress this past summer, and I know the amazing delegates and guardians you all met are so grateful too. We are tuned into a Senate hearing on what's fueling the diabetes epidemic in America. More than 10% of Americans suffer from type 2 diabetes. Senator Bernie Sanders said food and beverage companies are to blame. Let's watch. And I now the privilege of introducing the next witness, Dr. Aaron Kowalski, the Chief Executive Officer and President of JDRF. In his role as CEO and President of JDRF, Dr. Kowalski is responsible for advancing and funding type 1 diabetes research by working closely with academics and the type 1 diabetes community. He's also a scientist, and I'm told, and this is apparently not HIPAA protected, you also have type 1 diabetes. Uh, I always got to throw that in there, Dr. Kowalski, make sure I don't get busted. Um, Dr. Kowalski has authored a number of type 1 diabetes research articles focusing upon diabetes standards of care and the artificial pancreas. He has a doctorate in microbiology and molecular genetics from Rutgers. I look forward to your testimony, sir. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Chairman Sanders, Ranking Member, member Dr. Cassidy, members of the committee, thank you so much for inviting me to testify in your interest in diabetes. I'm Dr. Aaron Kowalski, CEO of JDRF, the leading global not-for-profit focused on type 1 diabetes. As a scientist by training and, Dr. Cassidy, yes, a person living with type 1 diabetes, I'm honored to work for JDRF for the past 19 years, four of which in my current role. I'd like to start with a thank you. Because of your incredible bipartisan support and leadership and the steadfast leadership of the Senate Diabetes Caucus co-chairs, Senator uh, Collins, who just uh, had to leave, unfortunately, but, uh, and Senator uh, Shaheen, the Special Diabetes Program, the SDP, and the Special Diabetes Program for Indians, the SDPI, are making a tremendous difference in the lives of people with diabetes and for their, our, hope for the future. These programs have helped fundamentally change what it means to live with type 1 diabetes and have put new life-changing therapies in our hands and have brought us closer to cures. JDRF and our countless volunteers are so grateful for the committee uh, 
that the committee recognizes the importance of building on this progress with the approval of S-1855, the Special Diabetes Program Reauthorization Act. We thank you and we continue to work with your colleagues to ensure the two-year $170 million per year uh, for each program is enacted. Let me highlight for you a, a few of the many exciting breakthroughs that have resulted in the investment in the SDP that gives us so much hope for a brighter future. Because of SDP funding, we have a new therapy approved, the first ever what we would call disease-modifying therapy, it's called t that delays the onset of type 1 diabetes and the need for insulin for nearly three years. This is landmark. First time in 100 years we've ever changed the course of type 1. Other such therapies are advancing in the research pipeline. This is huge progress. A delay in the onset has a tremendous impact on the daily lives of people at risk for type 1, their families, and the overall healthcare system. To take full advantage of T-Zield and therapies on the horizon, we need to ensure widespread screening for the risk factors that trigger type 1. In June, the FDA approved the first ever cell therapy for adults with type 1, those who are unable to maintain average blood glucose levels due to severe episodes of hypoglycemia. This therapy will allow some patients to live without external insulin for several years. This therapy could also have promise for the estimated 8 million people with T2D, type 2, who also rely on insulin administration every single day. This would not have happened without SDP funding. Another game changer for people with diabetes is technology to better manage blood sugar levels. I and many others with type 1 wear an artificial pancreas system, or AP systems. It consists of an insulin pump, a continuous glucose monitor, and a computer program called an algorithm that allows the pump and the CGM to communicate with each other and give the right amount of insulin at the right time. AP systems aren't perfect. They don't replace what you lost when you developed type 1 diabetes, but they do make life better. Better blood sugar control and easier diabetes management. Several systems are on the market now, and next-gen systems are in the research pipeline. Individuals with type 2 are also benefiting from these technologies. Many now use CGM to gain valuable information about how their food, exercise, stress, and other factors impact their lives and help them better manage their blood sugar levels to improve their health. Just this last week, the ADA standards of care were updated to reflect the importance of diabetes devices and recommended them to patients right away when they're diagnosed. Continued support of the SDP will enable several long-term T1D-oriented research programs and clinical trial networks to continue their important work. It will enable researchers to explore new opportunities. For example, highly beneficial SGLT inhibitors, drugs that lower blood sugar by preventing kidneys from reabsorbing glucose are approved for type 2, but not for people with type 1. We need to develop strategies to ensure these drugs can be safely used by type 1 people, which could reduce the costly and devastating impact of heart and kidney disease. Research for both type 1 and type 2 is critical to gain further understanding, advanced therapies, find cures, and JDRF and others are significantly investing in this research. But absent government support and investment, these advancements will slow. The cost of diabetes will rise. 
We need Congress to move swift, swiftly and enact the SDP and SDPI funding contained in S1855. And until cures, we need affordable insulin for all those who need it to live. JDRF supports the Bipartisan Insulin Act of 2023, led by Senators Collins and Shaheen, and calls on Congress to support its enactment. Thank you again for this opportunity to testify, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Dr. Kowalski. And that concludes our coverage of the Senate hearing on what's fueling the diabetes epidemic in America. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is on a two-day visit to the Middle East. The trip comes after Biden and Netanyahu voiced differences over the future of Gaza. Republican lawmakers are saying the World Health Organization takes marching orders from China. Find out what they are saying the U.S. should do about it. Rudy Giuliani makes an unexpected decision not to testify in his own defense. The case is determining how much he'll owe for accusing two election workers of fraud. Russian President Vladimir Putin warns there will be no peace in Ukraine unless Kiev agrees on certain deals. Find out what else Putin said at his annual news conference. A major subway accident in Beijing, a train car broke in two while the subway was in motion. See more footage of the aftermath. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. President Biden's National Security Advisor is in Israel meeting with the country's top officials. The White House said that U.S. support for Israel is undiminished, but also that Israel needs to be precise in its operations against Hamas and Gaza. The U.S. points to mounting civilian casualties in Gaza and differences in opinion about what a future for Palestinians should look like when the fighting ends. Biden recently said that there is, quote, no question about the need to take on Hamas. But he warned that Israel was losing support, criticizing what he called, quote, indiscriminate bombing of Gaza. The White House later clarified that Biden was only voicing concerns after a U.N. vote overwhelmingly in favor of a ceasefire. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan just wrapped up his meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Netanyahu told Sullivan that the war against Hamas could continue for months. In the transcript of the meeting, he cites the terrorists' extensive infrastructure. He says it will take time to root out Hamas, and he reiterates Israel's plan to destroy it completely. During Sullivan's two-day visit, he will also meet with other Israeli government leaders to discuss a range of issues, including the return of the eight American hostages being held by Hamas. Meanwhile, the Israeli Defense Forces said today that its ground operations remain active in three areas of Gaza. The IDF earlier released a video suggesting that they're taking extensive measures to minimize civilian casualties. Those steps include offering maps and instructions while urging Gazan civilians to temporarily relocate to safer areas. The IDF said it's also dropping flyers and making phone calls to communicate to those without internet access. 
The Congress has successfully passed the annual budget for the military. It's now waiting for Biden to sign it into law. This year's bill includes the largest pay raise in two decades. This year's National Defense Authorization Act includes an over 5% pay raise for service members. However, the bill does, does not include provisions to stop controversial policies, such as the Pentagon paying for some service members' travel expenses to get abortions, as well as funding for gender transition surgeries and funding for on-base drag shows. That's why the bill faces opposition in the Republican-controlled House, where lawmakers are due to vote on it today, before their Christmas recess begins tomorrow. Another reason for opposition is the bill includes a provision to extend Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act for another four months. Critics often say the government uses Section 702 to spy on Americans. The U.S. is preparing for a hypothetical war with China in 2030. This year's National Defense Authorization Act lays out pathways to begin strengthening U.S. defenses in the event of a military conflict with the CCP. Most notably, the military will have to draft an assessment of the impact a hypothetical war between the U.S. and China in 2030 would have. The assessment would outline likely avenues of attack, cyber actions, and threats to infrastructure, as well as the global economic consequences of such a war. The United States is one of the top donors to the World Health Organization, or WHO. Now some Republicans are questioning that partnership, holding a hearing about reforming the organization. They say the WHO follows orders from the Chinese Communist Party. The World Health Organization has played a tremendous role in the history. The United States was one of the founders. And when it came to the AIDS epidemic in particular and other, you know, they have been, but it seems to me that they're now corrupted by the communist Chinese. So what do we do and why should we continue to fund them? If they could the leadership is very clear that we expect uh, reforms uh, with regards to the way they do business in the U.S. Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis pointed out that the U U.S. pushed for an investigation into the origins of COVID-19 during the pandemic, but that the WHO gave China full veto power to work against that investigation. President Biden under investigation, House Republicans voted yesterday to formally authorize their impeachment inquiry. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the move, expected to give Republicans more firepower to force testimony and get documents. All Republicans voted in favor of the resolution. On this vote, the yeas are 221 and the nays are 212. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. House Democrat Jim McGovern called the move a sideshow political stunt with zero credibility. These guys, these Republicans, they don't work for you, the American people. Uh, they work for Donald Trump. He says jump, they respond how high. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries doubled down on the accusation, saying former President Trump had a key role in the impeachment play. Donald Trump, the puppet master, has directed extreme MAGA Republicans to launch a political hit job against President Joe Biden. Representative James Comer says the vote sends a loud and clear message to the White House to comply with subpoenas and requests for information. Uh, we have a simple question that I think an overwhelming majority of Americans have. What did the Bidens do to receive the tens of millions of dollars from our enemies around the world? Congressman Jim Jordan says Republicans can now move into the official impeachment inquiry phase of their constitutional oversight duty. 
The House has now spoken, and I think pretty loudly, pretty clearly, with every single Republican voting in favor. President Biden swung back hard at Republicans over the move, accusing them of attacking him with lies and wasting time on a baseless political stunt. The president says the American people deserve better. House Republicans allege Biden and his family profited from his stint as vice president under former President Barack Obama and have zeroed in on his son's business ventures in Ukraine and China during that period. They say they have evidence that the younger Biden led clients to believe he could provide access to the vice president's office. The White House and President Biden have always maintained he is innocent of any wrongdoing, saying that any misdeeds by Hunter Biden were done without his father's knowledge. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, the U.S. Federal Reserve signals that it is done raising interest rates, and we could be getting rate cuts coming in the next year. And high-end wine bottles are moved to an unlikely location in Manhattan. The State Liquor Authority is reportedly investigating a wine storage company. More in just a moment here on NTD News. Welcome back. In an unexpected move, Rudy Giuliani is not testifying in his defamation case, while his lawyers are arguing for a smaller fine. They called a proposed $43 million fine a type of death penalty for the 79-year-old. The former New York mayor was previously found liable for defaming two 2020 election workers. Andrea Shea Moss was a voter registration officer. Her mother, Ruby Freeman, was a temporary worker. The two Georgia election workers brought the lawsuit against Giuliani over statements that he made after the 2020 election. He accused the two of committing election fraud. Now, the only question for the jury is how Giuliani will owe, how much Giuliani will owe in damages. The plaintiff's attorney argues that Giuliani is liable for $24 million for each of his clients. Giuliani was expected to testify today, but his team ended their arguments instead. Ohio is very close to banning gender-related procedures for minors and transgender athletes in single-sex sports. The Ohio State Senate passed a major bill just yesterday. The bill is a two-part piece of legislation, the so-called Saving Ohio Adolescents from Experimentation Act bans all transgender surgeries for minors. It also mandates that physicians not prescribe cross-hormones for puberty-blocking drugs for underage patients. Mental health professionals must get parental consent to treat a minor for a gender-related condition. It includes exceptions for any minor already undergoing treatment and rare medical cases. The second part, called the Save Women's Sports Act, prohibits biological males from playing in girls' and women's sports. The bill also forbids any investigations or legal action against a school that's enforcing women's-only sports. However, it authorizes an athlete to file a civil action instead. Both parts have been approved by the Ohio House as well as the Senate and now await the governor's decision. A former FBI official will be sentenced today after pleading guilty to working for a Russian oligarch under U.S. sanctions. Prosecutors have called the businessman President Vladimir Putin's henchman. Charles McGonagall led the FBI Counterintelligence Division in New York from 2016 through 2018. In 2021, he worked for a Russian businessman by his own admission this August. 
That businessman was among two dozen Russians sanctioned in 2018. Those sanctions were in response to Russia's alleged meddling in the 2016 presidential election. McGonagall pleaded guilty to conspiracy to violate sanctions. Federal prosecutors in Manhattan are seeking the maximum five-year sentence. McGonagall's lawyers argue that he shouldn't get any prison time. The hearing is scheduled for 1.30 this afternoon in Manhattan Federal Court. And the New York Post reports that a state liquor authority is investigating a wine storage company in Manhattan. The probe comes after the FBI raided another prominent wine merchant in February. Customers say Chelsea Wine Storage has been giving them the runaround. Patrons say that it's been difficult to get their bottles from the facility. Wine lovers became even more concerned when they learned their vino had been moved. Outrage soon followed when they found out where. The bottles are now being stored under a closed TGI Fridays in Times Square. Wine is sensitive to temperature, humidity and light. Improper storage can ruin collections of high-end bottles. Properly stored wine can go for hundreds and even thousands of dollars. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to discuss yesterday's Federal Reserve meeting. The Fed's latest projections show that the interest rate hiking cycle has come to an end. Don, does this mean there will be no more interest rate increases? Well, Chris, uh, I think this might actually be the case here because Fed Chair Powell yesterday told uh, reporters that, and I'll read a quote uh, to you from him, that he says, we believe that we are likely at or near the peak rate for this cycle. So that means the Fed probably won't go any higher. But it seems like more important than that, uh, the Fed may actually be cutting rates next year. Uh, the Fed's projections show that rate cuts are coming into view. And policymakers were actually unanimous in, in that view uh, for 2024. And so that means borrowing costs could come down as well. And the Fed is telegraphing at least uh, three cuts in 2024. Um, I mean, so this is a huge development for markets and it provides a lot of uh, clarity as well. Uh, markets are now pricing in around a 75% chance of a rate cut in March next year. And the Dow yesterday hit uh, its a record high uh, since January 2022 yesterday um, after the news and Apple as well closed at rec record highs after this news. So it seems like a, a lot of people are happy about this news. I mean, and I mean, it's it's no surprise because uh, with lower interest rates, that means easier financial conditions and with uh, easier financial conditions that promotes economic growth, uh, more profit for companies, uh, encourages investment for companies as well, lower mortgage rates. Uh, that's a plus uh, could boost the housing market and uh, could lead to higher stocks which could boost uh, consumer wealth. And when consumers feel wealthy, they're likely to spend more and that could boost economic growth even further. So it seems like it's good news uh, from the Fed yesterday. Yeah, does the Fed feel like it's you know, defeated inflation altogether? Um, well, the Fed doesn't want to declare victory just yet over inflation, uh, potentially maybe too early. Uh, the central bank though, however, um, does see a significant progress when it comes to inflation. Uh, but the central bank is still free to raise interest rates at this point if something unexpected happens. Um, I mean, for the first time in nearly two years, food prices are actually rising slower than the headline inflation. And when it comes to wages as well, uh, it, no longer inflation is outpacing wages for Americans. So these are all good news. but. 
there is bad news as well. Uh, even though inflation is cooling, uh, not everyone is feeling it because even though the pace of prices, price increases have slowed, uh, prices across the board are still higher compared to, uh, let's say, two years ago. Uh, the typical American family spent over $200 more this year compared to the previous year. And if you're comparing from two years ago, Americans uh, are spending over $600 on the usual things that uh, they purchase. And uh, the reason for this is because CPI inflation is calculated by an index. So your personal experience may vary uh, depending on your uh, personal lifestyle. For example, if you drive to work, then car insurance costs are actually up 19%. But if you take the bus to work, um, transportation um, costs are actually down 8%. So the point here is that even if the Fed declares victory against inflation, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're all going to feel it. Right. Yeah. All right, give us our business updates for today, Don. Yeah, sure. Uh, a former Facebook manager seems like stole more than $4 million from the company. Barbara Furlow Smiles led Facebook's diversity, equity, and inclusion programs for years. She pleaded guilty to defrauding the company using fictitious charges and fraudulent invoices. And according to the Department of Justice, she abused a position of trust as a global diversity executive and ironically undermining her diversity, equity, and inclusion mission. Meanwhile, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is facing off with Elon Musk's lawyers in a San Francisco court today. The SEC is trying to force the billionaire to testify again for its probe of Musk's takeover of Twitter. SEC sued Musk in October to compel him to testify as part of an investigation into his 2022 purchase of the social media giant. SEC attorneys say that Musk refused to attend a September interview for the probe, and the agency is examining whether Musk followed the law when filing required paperwork with the agency about his purchases in Twitter stock. And just one more update from me. Southwest Airlines is offering free seats to larger passengers. Customers whose body size goes past the armrest are entitled to an extra seat according to Southwest's inclusion policy. And according to Fox Business, larger passengers have the option of discussing seating needs with a customer service agent. And if it's determined that a second seat is needed, they'll be given a complimentary, complimentary uh, additional seat. And customers can also purchase extra seats in advance and then contract, contact Southwest for a refund of the additional seating cost after travel. All right. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Thank you. A 72-year-old woman missing for four days was found alive after crashing her car in a canyon. Officials in Canyon County, Idaho, say Penny K. Clark was reportedly missing on December 5th. Four days later, her car was spotted 200 yards down a canyon wall. Clark was found nearby in a ravine. When rescuers reached her, she was conscious and alert and was carried out by first responders. The Canyon County Sheriff says it's miraculous she was found. Clark is recovering from her injuries at a local hospital. Six people stranded in the ocean near the Dominican Republic were rescued yesterday thanks to a cruise ship nearby. In this video captured by a cruise ship passenger, you can see a spotlight shining on the small orange emergency life raft carrying the stranded cargo ship crew members. It all happened after the captain of the carnival's Vista 
received an emergency alert about a small cargo vessel that had capsized. Carnival says the captain immediately alerted the ship's court, altered the ship's course. The ship's officers then spotted six men on a life raft, stopped to rescue them and bring them on board. The Coast Guard confirmed that it rescued six additional crew members from the water. The cruise ship was able to continue its journey after being cleared by the Coast Guard. The big game is officially returning to the City of Angels in 2027. Super Bowl 61 will take place at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California. The National Football League made the announcement yesterday. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell says the league is very excited to bring the Super Bowl back to the Los Angeles after the same stadium hosted Super Bowl 56 in 2022. Super Bowl 61 will be the ninth edition of the championship hosted in the Los Angeles area. And 27, 2027 will mark 60 years since the first Super Bowl was played at the LA Memorial Coliseum in 1967. Coming up, as debates over free speech and rising anti-Semitism on college campuses rage, a House committee examines the Chinese regime's threat to academic freedom in the U.S. And Paris hopes Olympic swimmers will be able to use an iconic waterway for the 2024 Olympics. It's constructing a giant basin to prepare for the Games. We'll have the details soon when we return. An alarming scene in Beijing when a subway train car broke in two while traveling. The accident happened about six hours ago. No fatalities have been reported so far. Footage circulating online showed one end of a train car disconnected from the other, with the passageway split and glass shattered. The accident occurred during the rush hour. Another video shows a large number of passengers crowded on board waiting, and children can be heard crying. According to a report from the Beijing Emergency Center, there were no fatalities in the accident, but more than 30 people were injured. The subway line is a major transportation link in northern Beijing. It runs for about 30 miles. And as Americans debate over free speech and rising anti-Semitism on college campuses, the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party is drawing attention to the regime's threat to academic freedom at U.S. institutions. And TD spoke with committee chairman Mike Gallagher about what's being done in response. Uh, I would like to first introduce Ms. Anna Kwan. Wednesday's hearing titled CCP Transnational Repression, the party's effort to silence and coerce critics overseas, invited testimony from three witnesses. Ms. Kwok, one of our witnesses, actually has a bounty on her head because she chose to stand up for freedom. Look at the wanted poster behind me. Representative Dusty Johnson says the courage of witnesses is giving a sense of how terrible the Chinese regime is. As we gain a deeper understanding of how comprehensive uh, the evil of the Xi Jinping regime is, it's amazing to me that there are still American CEOs, there are still American political leaders, there are still American thought leaders who think that they need to play nice with the Chinese Communist Party and the PRC. Of course, the Chinese people are not our enemies. They are the primary victims of Xi's reign of terror. But we should not go out of our way to pander or coddle a dictator. And the congressman says the U.S. needs to send a clear message, either through sanctions or other legal means. That you cannot uh, be a kingpin of this kind of organized crime and uh, get away with it. 
Johnson says the committee hearings give lawmakers opportunities to discuss how to hold the CCP accountable for its crimes. Witness Jinrei Zhang says he's received multiple threats on college campuses and online. He says his family has been interrogated over his dissenting views on the CCP. And uh, the threats were mostly the same, and the objective of trying to get me to stop talking was the same. Uh, the difference is that they showed my father a printout of my private chat records with my mother and my sister. Jang says the benefit of telling his story outweighs any possible harm. I am in America, so I am less afraid. Um, but I do believe that, that there will be some consequences to this. But I believe it, it is also very, very important for me to come forward to say this, because it is on the mind of so many people. Every person who has any kind of dissenting opinion against the Chinese Communist Party, they have thought about the possibility of being subject to transnational repression. Chairman Mike Gallagher told NTD that holding CCP collaborators accountable is a matter of educating law enforcement and demanding action in some cases. And I think that was the, that was really what happened with the illegal police station in New York. It's that initially the FBI didn't take action until there were reports drawing attention to it, and then they were forced to take action. So if we get law enforcement to a place where they're able to track things like this and take action before someone gets harassed or assaulted, that would be an ideal outcome. A tactic committee member Congresswoman Michelle Steele agreed was critical. So we really have to educate our law enforcement to protect us and protect all the immigrants. Gallagher says university leaders and administrators need to be held accountable for protecting their students from the CCP's repression. Um, they seem to be obsessed with this idea of safe spaces, but when it comes to the actual physical safety of Chinese students or Taiwanese students, too often they turn a blind eye, perhaps because um, there's a lot of money coming from China to American universities. The chairman suggests that institutions be stripped of federal funding or tax-exempt status if they break laws around disclosing foreign gifts. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And now for a shift in gears, we have some short headlines from the UK, Germany and other European countries. Russian President Vladimir Putin holding his annual press conference today. He says Russia currently has over 600,000 troops fighting on the front lines. He also says that the war will continue until Ukraine agrees to a deal that takes Moscow's security concerns into account. According to Putin, Russia's goal still is denazification and securing Ukraine's neutrality. He spoke on what Russia needs to succeed as a country. I've spoken about it many times, but repeating it does not hurt. For such a country as Russia, it is not possible to exist without sovereignty. It will just cease to exist, at least in a way it is today, in a way it has existed for 1,000 years. So the main thing is to strengthen sovereignty. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban continues advocating against EU membership talks for Ukraine. Orban is blocking not only the start of such talks, but also over $50 billion in financial aid for Ukraine. He commented today as he arrived at a key European Union summit in Brussels. We have set up seven preconditions, and even by the evaluation of the Commission, three out of the seven is not fulfilled, so there is no reason to negotiate membership of Ukraine now, even not to negotiate. Other leaders at the European Union summit, meanwhile, advocating for more aid for Ukraine and to start membership talks. The president of the European Parliament calls on Hungary to be open for negotiations. 
looked at um, the progress made on minority issues that were important um, uh, for Hungary. Uh, I know, and for the Hungarian minority in Ukraine, uh, we also need to continue to see what more demands are on the table, what more concerns will be on the table, in order for us not to have a hard no. Well, I, I've been attending European Council meetings for six or seven years now. Um, this is probably one of the most important ones that I've attended, precisely because of the big decisions we have to make in relation to Ukraine, uh, a financial decision and also a decision on whether to begin negotiations. Slovakia's Prime Minister today reiterated his campaign promise to halt weapons deliveries to Ukraine. But he said Slovakia will proceed with humanitarian aid for Kyiv. Here's the Prime Minister speaking at NATO headquarters in Brussels today, saying he doesn't see a military solution to this conflict. We really miss any peace initiative, and it doesn't matter whether it is, whether it is uh, in the European Union or it is in, in NATO. And uh, frankly speaking, uh, we cannot imagine that the war will continue next 10 years without any results. The only result will be maybe hundreds and hundreds of thousands of uh, victims. Finland today reopens two border crossings on its long border with Russia. That's after closing all eight roads between the two countries in late November. Finland aimed to halt an influx of immigrants from nations including Kenya, Morocco, Pakistan, Syria and Yemen. Some 900 people entered Finland via Russia in November. Before that, it was less than one per day. The northern European country previously accused Russia of funneling people to the border. It said that was in retaliation for Finland's decision to increase defense cooperation with the U.S. And Paris is digging a giant basin. It's supposed to help manage pollution levels in the iconic River Seine. The city hopes Olympic swimmers will be able to use the waterway in 2024. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the preparations for the Games. Paris hopes to host sporting events in the famous River Seine. The city is building the massive underground basin to the south. It's like a marathon. We've been talking about this for several years, but now we're approaching the last leg. And what was a challenge before is now a commitment, which is, first of all, to have events in the Seine during the Olympic Games. But beyond all that, to have a heritage of swimming for Parisians. The basin will have a capacity about the equivalent of 20 Olympic pools, but it's not for swimming in. For a long time, during the industrial era, the Seine was an overflow. We didn't hesitate to discharge wastewater into it. We put an end to this principle. Wastewater is now treated by the sanitation network and goes to treatment plants. And so, yes, in fact, we are in the process of regenerating a sensitive natural space. The basin isn't the only subterranean news. Paris metro ticket prices will almost double during the 2024 Olympics. Residents with regular passes will be exempt. It's the actual cost, but there's no way everyday commuters from the Paris region have to pay for that. It's normal that the Olympic Games visitors have to pay more to reinforce public transport services during the Games. It's the price to pay for the success of these Games. The mayor of Paris warned last week that public transport services would be insufficient during the events. The local leader disagrees. We will have more transport offerings so that all of the games can be accessed by public transport, and this has a cost. I committed to the residents of the Paris region that they won't be the ones paying for the cost. The Olympics will be held during July and August. Andrew Thomas, 
NTD News. The Paris Police Bomb Squad is preparing for a daunting mission when the city hosts the 2024 Olympics. France is on high alert to the threat of terrorist attacks. These officers just destroyed abandoned luggage in a train station where everyone had to evacuate after a bomb alert. The Olympic Games for all the police departments are an absolutely considerable challenge. The first stage is these inspections of all the Olympic Games sites. The second activity, which will be carried out in parallel, is that we imagine that given the population that will be moving around during the Olympic Games, we are likely to be faced with an increase in the number of abandoned parcels and suspicious packages. So from that point on, we'll certainly be seeing a great deal of intervention activity. Bomb alerts have also increased at tourist sites since the October 7 Hamas attacks in Israel. This is the scene of another suspicious package. After an analysis by the bomb clearing agents who were on site to remove any doubt, it was found to be a school bag. A school kid had forgotten it. He'd eaten lunch, he'd forgotten it, and we intervened with an area sealed off as a security perimeter. Police say they're in constant contact with the Olympic Games organizers to make sure everything keeps running smoothly. Presidential candidates made their case yesterday to voters in key primary states. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the multiple town hall events and what the candidates talked about. Iran and China. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy was in Iowa on Wednesday, taking part in a CNN town hall in Des Moines. The entrepreneur said the government has systematically lied to people for the last several years bringing up COVID and the capital breach. Ramaswamy also accused the government of entrapment in the Governor Gretchen Whitmer kidnap plot case, speaking on CNN. That is government agents put them up to do something they otherwise wouldn't have done. They gave them credit cards with spending limits of up to $5,000, encouraged them to buy munitions, plan something they weren't otherwise willing to plan. Nikki Haley was in New Hampshire with Governor Chris Sununu basking in her endorsement by the conservative group Americans for Prosperity last week. And then this week, I get endorsed by the live free or die governor. How cool is that? Presidential candidate Chris Christie was also in New Hampshire on Wednesday. The former New Jersey governor reacted to Governor Chris Sununu, saying he should get out of the race. He should know better. It's not his job to tell anybody when to get out. He can support whoever he likes. Christy downplayed Nikki Haley getting Sununu's endorsement, something he coveted himself. It would have been nice to hang around with him, and we could have done a funny show like he and, and Nikki are doing. But in the end, these voters are not going to be told by anybody who to vote for. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump was in Iowa, currently enjoying a big lead in the polls, but not taking anything for granted, speaking on a local station. No, you got to get out caucus, get out and vote, because we have to big uh, we have to put big numbers up, really big numbers. Trump picked up a key endorsement this week from conservative Senator Josh Hawley. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was also in Iowa this week on Tuesday. He called for congressional term limits and a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution. Speaking on CNN, we don't want somebody that's just going to go up there be part of the establishment rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, I want real serious structural change. 
Current Real Clear politics polling averages show Trump with a commanding national lead of nearly 50 points over DeSantis and Haley in second and third, with Ramaswamy and Christie far behind in fourth and fifth. The first Republican primary is on January 15th in Iowa. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A New York State appeals court denied Donald Trump's bid to overturn a gag order. That means he's restricted from making public comments about court staff in his New York civil fraud trial. Justice Arthur Engeron issued the gag order after Trump criticized a law clerk. Trump argued that the order violated his constitutional right of free speech. The court said that the gag order did not have a major impact given that it was limited to court staff statements only. And U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin has paused court proceedings in the election case against former President Trump, pending his appeal to dismiss the case entirely based on presidential immunity. We have with us Executive Director and General Counsel at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and former Texas prosecutor Rob Henneke to discuss. Rob, what are the implications of the federal judge's decision to pause the case against Trump in connection with January 6 events, particularly concerning the concept of presidential immunity? Well, the prosecution has been nakedly political, where the prosecutor, Jack Smith, has been pushing for an accelerated trial date to coincide with the March primaries to force ram through a uh, conviction of President Trump for that to be used in the upcoming presidential election. With this appeal, uh, which I think should prevail, uh, that delays that time frame and thwarts the goals of the prosecutor uh, to be able to have a show trial prior to the November election. So likely because of this appeal and the stay of the trial court proceedings, uh, it will postpone indefinitely the ability of the prosecutor to proceed forward with the time frame that he had wanted. So we're looking at why special counsel Jack Smith would want this case to go to the Supreme Court. How could this help the prosecution? And is there a potential that this could actually end up helping Trump's defense? Well, it could. It, he wants it because he wants to expedite the process, to short circuit it to make it speed up so he can accomplish his goal of having this kangaroo court show trial proceeding occur prior to the November election. And in the filings with the court, he urges the court to act with expediency and says this is urgent, but he never says why. And because the reason why is simply because he wants this trial to occur for political purposes. Uh, I don't think the Supreme Court should take the case. The Supreme Court should have the intermediate appellate court review the issues and then potentially appeal it to the Supreme Court. We shouldn't throw out the rules of, of civil procedure simply because of who is on trial. Uh, but the question is central on this because in the actions that President Trump is accused of doing, he was President of the United States. And in as unprecedented as it is for the government to be prosecuting President Trump for conduct that is arguably not a crime, mm -hmm. uh, whether a former sitting president should be criminally prosecuted for actions he took as president is an important legal issue that has to be resolved before any of these cases proceed forward. And what potential challenges do you foresee for both the defense and prosecution regarding the delays in Trump's case and the subsequent legal strategies adopted in light of these delays? So I think uh, the time helps President Trump because he's able to focus on his campaign, he's able to uh, focus on the upcoming primaries. 
where you have these cases that have been filed against him in New York, in Washington, D.C., in Florida, all on questionable legal theories that are really intended to dra drain his resources and, and to divert him from being able to focus on his campaign. These, these are all being brought for political reasons. So the time helps him. The time hurts Jack Smith because really the very premise of what he's doing is to have this completed prior to the November election. And so uh, I would assume that if these cases continue on past November, that regardless of the presidential uh, election outcome, uh, they'll simply go away. Uh, yep. Because the reason the government are bringing these cases will disappear once we know who is elected president next year's November election. Right. And lastly, in other cases, the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, also just accepted a case challenging the obstruction charges related to January 6th. How might this influence similar January 6th cases in the legal approach towards obstruction charges? This is past due. It should have happened a long time ago, but it's fascinating to watch because what the government, one of the central, central theories of the government cases in prosecuting the January 6th defendants has been using this financial crime statute that was enacted after the Enron scandal uh, that makes it a crime to corruptly obstruct congressional investigations. They've applied it in this context in a very vague statute that was never intended to apply in this kind of situation. So the Fisher case, the Supreme Court has granted review, uh, will answer the question as to whether this statute is one that is applicable in this situation. And given the fact that the federal government, the Department of Justice, has used this legal theory and the statute to prosecute hundreds of other January 6 defendants, and is also a legal theory at issue in President Trump's case, how the Supreme Court resolves this case hmm. uh, could potentially overturn uh, the existing convictions of a number of January 6 defendants uh, and, and throw out many other cases that are still uh, pending by the government. Rob Panicky, Executive Director and General Counsel of the Texas Public Policy Foundation and former Texas prosecutor, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Next up, cruise ship operators are steaming ahead to a potentially strong 2024. U.S. cruise operators and travel agents said travelers have booked heavily for next year, even more than before the global health crisis. Here's more. Cruises are in demand as they are widely seen to be cheaper than land-based alternatives. And with such popularity, operators plan to hike prices in the coming months. One CEO described the market as extremely strong and picked out the high-end luxury part of the sector as doing a roaring trade. One industry watcher said bookings made in November for next year were about a fifth higher than in the same period in 2019. Royal Caribbean Group CEO Jason Liberty also said recently that demand was outpacing 2019 levels by a wide margin. Trade body Cruise Lines International Association said about 35.7 million passengers are expected to set sail next year up from 31.5 million in 2023. The figure is about 6% more than in 2019. But there is one big catch for cruise lines as demand soars. Bookings could be held back due to a lack of capacity. Carnival CEO Josh Weinstein said earlier this year volumes for next year will fall back as the company could run out of inventory to sell. Smaller operators also say volumes are overflowing. Would you spend three and a half years cruising at sea? 
That's the deal cruise startup Villa V Residences is currently offering. The ship named Villa V Odyssey set sail in May of next year for a journey around the world. It was built in 1993, enlarged in 20, 2009, and renovated again in 2019. It can host nearly 1,000 passengers across about 500 cabins, eight decks, a wraparound promenade, and of course, a pool. Ship also has three restaurants, eight bars, four lounges, a spa, fitness center, library, and medical center. Its flatter hull means it can navigate inland waterways as well as the open ocean. Another cruise line, Life at Sea, recently canceled their three-year offering. It was forced to reimburse passengers because the ship it was planning to use became unavailable. A rainbow-colored field of light is illuminating Manhattan's Freedom Plaza, bringing together art, technology, and nature. The public art installation consists of about 19,000 spheres that slowly shift color. It spreads across six acres. Guests can stroll on the winding paths against the backdrop of the city's iconic skyline and the East River waterfront. British artist Bruce Munro has created similar walkthrough experiences around the world. This is his first installation in New York City. It officially opens to the public tomorrow and will be on view for 12 months. A magical night in the heart of Copenhagen. Some 500 kayaks adorned with twinkling Christmas lights glided through the canals, lighting up the winter darkness. This display was part of a celebration honoring St. Lucia, known as the Bearer of Lights. The Lucia kayaking tradition has been going strong for about a decade in the region. To participate, the kayakers need to decorate their vessels with lights visible from every angle. Some sported traditional Lucia crowns featuring candles on their heads. That's associated with the celebration of the third century Saints Day. It traditionally involves a parade of singing children led by a Lucia figure wearing a crown of candles. The concept of the light procession originated in Sweden toward the end of the 19th century and it was later embraced by Denmark. Well, that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.